Welcome back to a brand episode of Two Please. I'm your host Abin, and I'm your co-host Rohit. Welcome to the second episode of the third season of Two Please, and we're going to continue with what we did in our previous episode, which is uh, another single movie deep dive. This episode, uh, mm-hmm. we're going to be talking about the 2016 Barry Jenkins movie Moonlight, uh, which unfortunately for most people today is more memorable because of the Oscar goof up, uh, while it is. on its own merit at least by my opinion probably the second best at least movie of the decade if not the best because like i said parasite exists uh but uh, anyway before i really start talking about moonlight uh anything you want to add before we start the show a bit yeah um the thing is i i watched this movie for the first time in 2016 when it was doing the oscar buzz and i didn't i mean it was a good movie i didn't really have and any particular inclination to it but then i watched it again for this episode because i remember you uh, we had this discussion about how you uh, you know you wanted to do this on one of the episodes and i was like cool let me have a, a look at it again and this time around i've had a very different experience and i would really like to discuss it in in the episode as things progress so i made notes this is my new thing i make notes for episodes now and awesome. uh, i think because it's one one movie per episode you are compelled to you can't skim the surface right you kind of yeah i can't, i can't bullshit like i mean are you i mean you can go back to the episode few of the episodes in uh i think the early days and you can if you have a good bullshit detector oh goodness i am like bullshitting my way through some of them <laughs> but this i but can't good. because obviously is, yeah it's going to be an interesting conversation i too have thoughts I'm yeah, trying and, to. And we're recording this. Uh, we're recording yeah. this during Pride Month, so which I, complete coincidence oh, wow. was not planned. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. So this is a good um, uh, one of those happy coincidences. Yeah. But uh, let's start the show. Yeah, let's start the show. I am big. It's the picture that got small. Yes, so Moonlight, twenty sixteen, directed by Barry Jenkins, um, stars Mahershala Ali, uh, Naomi Harris. Janelle Monae. Mahershala Ali, isn't Mahershala? Mahershala. I thought you said Mahershala Ali. Sorry. I mean, his performance is like Mahershala Ali only, but it's just. Uh, <laughs> and it's basically a coming of age story about this this young boy named Sharon. uh and it's told through three specific chapters one when he's an 8 year old boy the second where he's an adolescent kid and the third is when he's a full grown adult um and it details his journey um through life and how he comes to terms with his own sexuality and how and like his his back and forth with it really and you know just how what kind of relationship he has with it is that a good enough explanation or i think or am i missing something no i think you're factually right yes and i mm-hmm. uh, i think if you go one step beyond what is factually shown on screen is where different interpretations can sort of start uh, coming into the picture right like for me i look at it as, as a movie yes it is a coming of age film of sorts but i look at it more as a movie of acceptance of uh, of the character of shiron coming to terms with or being finally being accepted by the people that he wants to be accepted by right uh, mm-hmm. he is a, he has a kid grown up who has grown up being rejected by his mother and you know he's had that stunted emotional development i don't think his dad's even in the picture his mom yeah. is a crack addict and uh, clearly uh, abusive to him uh, emotionally physically financially as well as we see uh, down the line uh, he finds acceptance in the first chapter he finds acceptance in the form of one who is a sort mm-hmm. of uh pseudo father figure to him uh but again there is a conflict there because juan is in the business that is precipitating the sort of abusive behavior his mother is meeting out to him because juan is a drug dealer and his 
pretty much the drug dealer from whom his mom scores crack right yeah so there is that dichotomy there that uh, shairon has to deal with mm. um in the middle chapter again there is this whole he's seeking acceptance or rather i feel in the middle chapter there's there's a little bit more ambiguity in the sense that it's not a specific person that he's uh, seeking acceptance from while while kevin is in the picture there uh, it's more just trying to fit in or rather trying to disappear within the fabric of the high school structure right which even if you're not uh, somebody who is uh, like cis het it is still difficult mm. to navigate and for him it's it's even harder so it's just the, the struggle to fit in he doesn't feel accepted there either and obviously the last chapter there is the acceptance he wants uh, to be seen by kevin and he wants kevin to know that he's the only person who whose acceptance uh, he has ever really wanted or the only person who has touched him as he puts it mm-hmm. uh, so i look at it as a yes coming of age yes but the larger theme i see is acceptance because again like i keep mentioning right the best same sex movies or the be- best homosexual movies that is not center and uh, you know front and center it's not in focus it in in moonlight yes it is a big part of it but i look at it as the prote- this movie is for sensitive people you know mm-hmm. that's that's what i took from shairan's character because of what he has faced growing up at home or because that's his intrinsic nature from as i was watching the movie i made a note about how similar black indian communities are and how much of your um life is shaped by what other people think mm-hmm. and your and basically your your image in society plays a huge part in both these mm-hmm. communities is that something I've, i've really noticed that that particularly stood out for me in the film and if you notice earlier on in the film let's 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 cycle back to the first chapter that's to the chapter called little um i think everybody else around sharon knows what he is i think everyone yeah. understands what he is even one i think was one opens the film and then when he discovers him in that crack den he realizes that oh this this kid i mean there's something different about this kid mm. and when he's at football practice with i think he meets kevin there for the first time like the, the other kids are making fun of him and like you said right he keeps pushing him further and further into his own shell there's no uh, safe space at him at home for him to open up to because his mother is fighting her own demons and is clearly incapable of taking care of the child and he finds this this thing with one he finds a safety with one he goes to janelle money and and one's house and they give him some food and he starts to open up to them little by little yeah and one i remember one drops him home and this is the first time you meet naomi harris interestingly uh, naomi harris had about 3 days three to days. film all her yeah, yeah all her scenes cuz she was doing uh, the the promo for specter at the time and yeah. because of that she was in the country and you know she was having visa issues so they kind of fit her into a 3 day schedule and that that performance is is amazing because of how you see her devolve into this into this person who is consumed by um uh, her addiction and it it's heartbreaking to see because there's a good person in there but it's just it, it's lost and and you can see her saying you know trying trying to be this sympathetic person to him but by she can't and eventually she just gives up and and succumbs to um the addiction i would really like to see Her, his mother's character pre-addiction because yes addiction is a problem there is no denying that but and maybe there is a good person the last chapter does show that there is a good person in there mm-hmm. underneath all of that nastiness it would just i mean i i i want to see even even a glimpse of her pre-addiction life is what i would probably require to really convince me you know because first two chapters it's just really hard to like like her in any form sympathize no yeah i fully yeah. understand i think that that conversation in the third chapter is where it really brings out the humanity in her and this movie is set during the the crack crack epidemic of um of the late 80s and the early 90s and it's set in liberty city in miami which is like this yeah uh underprivileged neighborhood and so it's it it really i mean it's a real issue i think it's based on barry jenkins um own personal um story his mother also dealt with addiction and i think the author terrell alvin mccraney 
wrote this and he intended it for it to be a play that went that went unproduced and then it ultimately landed up at Barry Jenkins' door and he decided to produce it with the help of A24 or they distributed it anyway i'm a little hazy on the details but coming back to the film right and um, let's let's skip back to chapter 1 where this is my possibly my favorite scene in the film which is where one takes um for um, a take shot yeah sharan for a swim doesn't know how to swim i think even the actor at the time didn't know how to swim he was basically yeah. learning they were actually marsha ali was actually teaching him how to swim in the in during the scene yeah yeah and there's some very intense uh, baptism imagery there i mean if you yes. want to you need to it um but besides that i think it was more like a, like a core memory that was being formed for him i think that's something most of us carry through for most of you know for, for the rest of our lives the first time you learned how to swim who was there when you um when you were learning and for him who's ne- and and for shairon who's never had that father figure character in his life this was one step closer to him really opening up to him and you know being more comfortable and this is this the part of the film where one tells shairon about um the old woman in cuba and uh, that that's kind of where the the film's most iconic line comes from running around catching up all that light the moonlight like boys look blue you blue that's why i go call you blue say your name blue some point you got to decide for yourself who you want. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. Now, it's it's interesting because a lot of a lot of the the moments that Sharon really opens up in this film happen in moonlight. Um throughout daylight if you've noticed he's just the shut off and closed off character. Yeah. And also in the first act, I think when it comes to he, he goes back home and he's had like a day with just after this this day ends right he goes back home and he walks in on his mother and this guy doing mm-hmm. I, i would assume they're doing crack and she takes in she takes it inside and uh you know the whole day falls apart and you can see it fall mm-hmm. apart on shairon's face the walls come straight back up but you kind of sense that he's himself the one time you really see himself is the, for the first time anyway is uh is when it's dark and in the moonlight mm. and the second time mm. it happens on the beach with Kevin and the mm. third time again it happens with with Kevin when he when he reaches back out to him mm. so very interesting that um um you know his he he's only his true self in in the moonlight yeah and this is another thing that i noticed with each chapter was named little black and and shairon and the only time that he truly embraces himself before the ending of the film is in the second chapter and it's called Shairon the other two chapters are nicknames that are either given to him or that he's given to himself mm. uh, little he hates being called little but everyone keeps calling him that so it's not really who he is black is this persona that he's built to um you know protect himself like this uh, hard exterior that nobody can pierce through but sharon is the one uh, is is the chapter where he's most open and uh, which is probably why he also gets most hurt exactly yeah that's a very um pivotal chapter in his story um agree i i totally agree in fact um, more to the point of the on the scene that uh, has one teaching uh, little how to swim i think it really establishes that scene establishes his relationship with the water because again with the character of shairon water is a recurring motive throughout the film obviously you are staying in in miami you are going to encounter the beach but that said like you mentioned a lot of pivotal moments in his life like core memories to use an inside out term a lot of core memories in in shairon's life have been formed by the beach that first swimming lesson that encounter with kevin even later on towards the end of the film if i remember correctly the apartment the tenement that kevin lives in is next to the mm-hmm. water you can hear the water he, that's i think he remarks on that saying hey you can hear the beach even here so yeah. 
I think that for him is is where he finds his release because, and the the way the subliminal message I took from that is you know the beach is quiet. It's it's expansive. It's open. It's it's not restricted. There are no uh, there's no oppression, and that's the sort of freedom that probably Chiron's soul craves, right? Which is what mm-hmm. which is the fix that the beach gives him. So yeah. again, this may be me re- me reading more into the film than there probably is, but uh, I feel that is what they were going for because Barry Jenkins is a very thoughtful director, and yeah. uh, and to the scene of uh, you know uh, the way Paula uh, treats him, one obviously is the uh, scene when he comes back and she's with another guy. There's also another scene in the first chapter where he comes home. Uh, he realizes the TV's been pawned off for drug money, and mm-hmm. he has to sort of take care of himself. He heats the water, you know, fills it in his bathtub. He's an eight-year-old kid who's been asked to fend for himself in a house where, which is you know, just about barely uh, supplied for. So mm-hmm. he's already independent. He's uh, used to taking care of himself. It's it, it's a sad scene, but it also explains a lot about the kind of person that he is. Uh, mm-hmm. Then again, there's the scene where uh, Juan uh, sees Paula smoking crack in in a car next to the place where they sell, right? Sell it, and yeah. that's that's a big no-no in the in the selling business. For those of you who've seen The Wire, uh, you'll you'll empathize. So mm-hmm. uh, he immediately goes to uh, sort of shoo away whoever the person is, finds out it's Paula. He's pissed because he can see that he, at this point, he spent a significant time with Chiron and therefore he's like, why is this lady going down this path of self-destruction? And uh, she retaliates saying, you're the one pushing me down this path because you're the one who's selling me the drugs. And obviously there is this self-loathing and uh, hatred for herself or uh, anger at this or frustration at the situation that Paula then takes back home with her. And therefore, yeah. the immediate next scene you see is her venting that anger, that frustration, that self-loathing out on little. There's this lovely little sequence where uh, there's no dialogue, there's barely any music. It's just a short reverse shot of Paula and uh, Little looking at each other. Paula's lit behind her with these insane colors, oh. like green, yeah. purple, pink. And uh, I was just reading up. Uh, I was reading an interview of Barry Jenkins, and he was mentioning how. Uh, Happy Together by Wong Kar Wai is one of the influences for the movie and he generally is a big fan of Wong Kar Wai and upon seeing that scene I was like of course he's a fan of Wong Kar Wai right? <laughs> that lighting is trademark Wong Kar Wai uh, mm-hmm. but that's I mean it's, it's lovely and in that scene you can sort of see her mouth a certain expletive that we should not mention mm-hmm. on the podcast uh, yeah. and the immediate scene after that is him going to Juan and Teresa's house and asking them what uh, F whatever yeah. the F word for gaze, right? What what that mm-hmm. word means, and uh, again, that's a very touching scene. So you can see uh, there is a there is a clear progression of the narrative, yes, but there is a lot that is happening under the surface, not just of the story, but of Chiron as a character himself. So the first chapter itself, you can see, is is very fertile in 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 building the character of Chiron, setting up the forces that propel him in specific directions that his life takes because he again the point being that in one as a drug dealer he sees a father figure after in the third chapter you see himself has become a drug dealer because to yeah. him that's not a bad career right that's mm. the person who he probably looked up to the most was a drug most dealer. Is. it's probably a noble profession for him so you see all of these markers for his later life those flags being planted in the first chapter so i would say narratively speaking it's probably the the most important chapter, whether it's your favorite or whatever. I'm, I'm guessing people's mileage may vary, but in terms of establishing the story, that's probably the most important chapter. I also think like the the scene that probably won uh, Marshal Ali his his Oscar is the is the scene the next day where Little comes and asks him what the F word yeah. is, what it means, yeah. and then it dawns on him that the only way he could have possibly found out about this is the mother such yeah. so late at night that she must have gone home and she must have said something yeah and it breaks him because he is somewhat he feels somewhat inadvertently responsible for what is for what has happened to this guy because it's yeah. he's an eight-year-old child and he has no idea what's happening to him i mean he's not even hit puberty yet and yeah. it's just 
it's to watch both Janelle Monique and uh, Marshall Ali on the table being like on the shape on Marshall Ali's face yeah. is outstanding. Yeah. Like he's he's struggling. He's trying to um, tell him that you know what it's a bad word, but only but and then he tries to like mention that it could be used in other scenarios, but then he just doesn't want to. Uh, he he realizes he's not equipped. It's a quick funny and... moment there, right? He looks at Janelle mm. and he's like, unless, and she's just like, like no. don't don't mm. go there. Yeah, and but you can see that the both of them are absolutely struggling, yeah. and yeah. little yeah. at this point is is just retreated. Like he's gone. He's he's found the darkest spot within him, and he's crawled into it, and uh, that's where he stays. Yeah, and then we uh, jump into chapter two with. Um, which is the Sharon chapter, right? And I think at this point, it's indicated, like you mentioned, it's indicated that one is dead and nobody knows how he died. I think it's left to the viewer's yeah. interpretation to say, okay, he must have found, like, he must have passed. Maybe it was natural causes. Maybe it was just he was caught up in a drug bust. And it and this more is where than projections likely, come in, right? Like, what what are you projecting onto what caused one's death? It's it's more a reflection yeah. of what you think about what a life where the drug dealer is, right? Like my instant yeah. thing was, oh, maybe he got shot. Because in and my head, it's like, bust, oh, yeah. yeah, drug bust. Mm-hmm. You, you, that's, that's how it ends, right? Maybe he yeah. died of cancer. You don't know. Maybe he, somebody, well, I don't know. It could be anything. It, it's how you're projecting your thoughts about what that life is. Yeah. And I think um, it, it was very interesting because I think he ended up, uh, he goes back to and uh, to Juan's house. And he meets Teresa, I think. General Monique's character is called Teresa, yeah. Teresa right? And uh, she and he keeps talking to her, and she says, "It's all love and, and all pride in this house. It's like you don't need to hide who you are." Mm-hmm. And I mean, she's still trying to to pull him out of his shell, and you know, get him to accept himself uh, for who he is. But you know, of how adolescence is, you're up and down that emotional scale. So more so when you're trying to deal with your own sexuality. So I, I un- understand it. Yeah, I mean, as, it's hard enough as a like straight person, right? I mean, so much, yeah, so I mean, much harder. Yeah, I, and what makes it worse is at that age, guys of all colors are dickheads. Like yeah. we've we've grown up. I went to an all boy boy school, so I can vouch for the fact that during that age, between that 12, 14, 12, 13 to 16 year old uh, gap everyone's an asshole and yeah. because they try and it's like this weird assertiveness or like there's a need to dominate and I can tell you so many stories that in, when that happened in school were the stupidest things where gangs assembled to, to, to take part in, in fights that's just how it is and similarly there's a guy in uh, in this school called Terrell who seems to have an issue with, with Sharon and just keeps bullying him like he's a straight up bully and I think also at the same time, uh, Sharon meets Kevin and Kevin kind of, again, like he meets Kevin earlier on, but now like the, the newer version yeah. of Kevin uh, who considers himself sort of a playboy and he talks about how this girl did that, this to him and this girl did that to him and this is what he did. He was a typical teenage bra- braggadocio uh, yeah. in, his, in the manner of his narration. Uh, also on Terrell, I really find that character... Like apart from the main characters, he's probably the most interesting character to me because of uh, how you can read him, right? Because yes, mm-hmm. he's a bully and yes, he's very antagonistic or hostile to uh, Sharon. But I don't know if you if you notice, there's a point where uh, Sharon's sitting in class and he turns to Terrell and you can see Terrell looking at him. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is how I looked at it. There was... Obviously, disgust, anger, all of that. But there's some element of desire, some element of lust in his eyes. And I feel Terrell internally is also struggling with a lot of internal, you know, internalized homophobia. Uh, Classic case, you know, people who are very outwardly homophobic probably feel uh, homosexual feelings internally. And it comes from, again, self-loathing or whatever. He's projecting that outwards as bullying and anger. Funny you mentioned that because it just reminded me of... um sex education where they do a really good job of exploring a character who's clearly um, suppressing his, his his true his true self and he takes it out on the only other open I mean this, there are two other gay characters in, on the show but he takes it out on the one that he's attracted to uh, which is Eric and 
similarly i like i felt that too and then now that you you brought you brought up that i remember watching that episode that scene and being like hmm could there be more to this could this be like one of those things where you try and picture yourself in that person um and you're trying to suppress it you're trying to beat it down so that it it goes away that gnawing feeling inside of you goes away because that can be interpreted from interpreted from the um, uh from their entire exchange how the relationship mm-hmm. but uh, yeah so there's that and uh, like you're mentioning he does meet kevin and um i would say this next 10 minutes for me is probably relatively the weakest section of the film uh mm-hmm. wherein you know uh, after him and kevin have that conversation in in school and he goes back and um he has a wet dream right he has a wet dream of kevin yeah. uh and he gets up and he's like oh shit what has happened and this is when he's at teresa's house um mm-hmm. after this when uh, him and kevin go to the beach and they have that conversation um it felt a little forced while the scene in isolation is beautiful where they talk about uh, mm-hmm. crying and they talk about being open and vulnerable and in touch with their feelings which again uh, again neither of us are gay or black but from what i know of the black mm-hmm. community it's hyper masculine it's very mm-hmm. you know you're not supposed to be or you're not expected to be in touch with your feelings as much so for them to have that exchange where they say sometimes i feel uh and i love that line i think it's straight from the play where uh uh shyron says sometimes i feel like cry sometimes i cry so much i feel like i've turned into little drops right mm-hmm. the standalone that line is just like and I, and i heard that and i was like wow this is like poetry in motion that scene is beautiful what follows obviously they have an intimate moment and and kevin gives sharon a hand job uh that scene is beautiful it just feels forced in the sequence of events as they happen which is why i feel that mm-hmm. that those 10 minutes of the film uh, you sort of take away from the momentum of feel like Sorry. it could be underplayed just a little bit no i'm okay with the explicit uh, i mean you... it wasn't very explicit i don't i don't think That no, it really wasn't. Good. I don't think there's any. Yeah, about how how it escalates from let's say a certain point to yeah. So that's right. Yeah, because for mm-hmm. them to that is the problem, right? I mean, it probably needed a little more of a build up to it. Because what have you seen? You've seen these two guys talk in class and where um, he's bragging about having sex with another girl. So there is no in- indication saying that he's. say is bisexual or whatever right mm-hmm. out of the blue you have you they spoken a couple of times yes they are friends and whatever but there is nothing that hints at this interaction taking place out of the blue which is probably why mm-hmm. the scene on its own is beautiful but it feels inorganic in the larger scheme of the movie i think the escalation mm-hmm. bit really completed the puzzle for me i was that's that's the missing piece that you sort of helped me with that is why it then mm-hmm. scene feels inorganic while on its own it's an outstanding scene mm-hmm. okay what do you think um i i particularly don't have any issue with the scene i think it kind of um you kind of build up to the moment in this during the scene because it's it's understood that i think kevin knows kevin's always known right from mm-hmm. when he was a child and it was just one of those things that have, that has been building that we don't see as as the viewer as much and he tries to be this again like this hyper masculine kid that this 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 fuck boy for the lack of a better word and i think sharon kind of sees through the the charade mm-hmm. he understands like it's it's implied like you know he's he's trying to be this guy he's like you can tell this guy is just a, a walking contradiction slowly and slowly not what <laughs> um or what he truly feels and then when they have that moment in the beach where they open up and uh, they have that really tender moment and kevin gives him a hand job it, it it's 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 cute in a way where like it's over and then he starts apologizing and you know yeah, like there's nothing to apologize for yeah and it's it's just a it's a such scenario that's not alien to to a lot of people i think everyone at some <laughs> point has been like oh i've been ashamed to clean this and, up you know, Yeah, I'm so sorry. Like it, it happens. So it's it, I kind of like found myself smiling and laughing at it because it, it's it's such a real moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I I understand why you feel like there's a there's a like it happens too quickly. Like you like you feel yeah. like there's not enough build up for it. But I think as I was watching it, I was comfortable with the idea that okay, these guys are 
like this relationship maybe like you said right there's a lot that's been established unseen we've had time jumps maybe yeah. I, i i guess that's fair yeah but then and, after uh, this this beautiful moment you have probably the 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 lowest point of the movie at least for me i don't know you feel is the the most heartbreaking saddest and lowest point of the film where terrell sort of socially manipulates i don't know how else to put it uh kevin yeah. into uh beating down on on shiron right it's it's all this again it comes from this place of masculine goading where you're like hey remember that game we used to play where you would knock someone down with one punch are you still man enough to do that can you still you know it comes from that place of masculinity where hey you need to show that you're a man being a man yeah. means you need to inflict violence on somebody else which is such a perverted way of a uh, perverted view of masculinity right and then there's this whole sorry you were saying something uh, no and i think what kevin this is where if you like at this scene if you look at kevin this is where his chickens come home to roost because he's been <laughs> building this image of this hyper masculine fuckboy dude yes that will do anything to, to yeah and then yeah and then Yeah, it's time to pay the piper because here comes this guy and he's like, oh, you're going to prove your guy, you're a dude, aren't you? Like, you're going to do this, right? And you can see Kevin is conflicted because he knows who he's going to point yeah, out. You're the same Bishop boys only. This is <laughs> gang yeah. that you were saying. Yeah, yeah. So it's just, it's like one of those stupid, stupid things. I mean, even then, okay, I mean, no one really fought. It was just like this big, uh, what do you call, gesturing. Like, yeah, yeah, it was just... Yeah, it was all, uh, Yeah, it's all for show, right? And even on the odd occasions, a dude got punched. Everyone was like, "Oh, compromise, no compromise, bro," and they go home. <laughs> so it's just it's the most stupidest thing that I've unfortunately borne witness to. So, but unfortunately, that's not what happens in this case. If it, no, if it, it doesn't. Ended one punch it is okay, but uh, Kevin does take a swing at Sharon. Connects well and truly. You can see uh, a bruise immediately form, and more than what's physically hurting Sharon, it's it's the fact that. uh it's kevin that's hitting him right and i think yeah i i'm fairly certain at at at, at some level terrell knows that there is maybe obviously there is a strong friendship between the two but maybe something more and therefore he specifically wants kevin to hit sharon to inflict maximum emotional damage as well and sharon also gets up after the punch and he's defiant in saying hey you know what my walls are back up and there's you you think you can hurt me by just punching me and you know betraying me no i can still take more and he but you defies... can tell you can see yeah you can also see kevin saying stay down stay down yeah stay and down. kevin's like i don't want to do this yeah stay down the point of this game is to like hit a guy until he's fully down it's like stay yeah. down please stay down and sharon gets back up again he lands one yeah. more and then he falls and then the other guys uh, beat him up and i think this is the point where the walls come up and the the depressed anger comes out Yes, yeah. he goes the home. The scene in the principal's face. office. Yeah, again, there when he cleans his mm. face, he puts his face in in that ice ice cold water. Just holds mm. it there again. There's this whole motive of you know water giving him some solace in in a difficult time. Uh, and the immediate scene after that, where he's in the principal's office. I don't know if it's between the fight and home or the sequence. I don't yeah. exactly remember. But the principal says. Uh, why didn't you beat him hit him back or whatever and he just breaks down he says you don't even know uh he says you don't even know that point mm-hmm. i remember when i watched it the first time i was like dude i have not felt this shitty watching a film i have not felt this bad for a character watching a film in a long time like nobody deserves this man it's just so sad i think the actor portraying him um ashton sanders ashton sanders does like a terrific job Yeah, of because I think he has the heaviest lifting to do because he, he does, kind he of does. has yeah he has to portray the vulnerable side he has to portray the tough side he has to like there's there's a lot there's a big there's more range um to that middle chapter than there is to the first or the third chapter in my yeah, personal opinion yeah. I agree so, I agree yeah and then when he comes back when the walls are back up the anger is out and he comes back and takes the chair and he breaks it on. Yeah, first it cuts to you know I I love the shot because it cuts to the teacher, and as he breaks it, you see the teacher just stand in shock and doesn't react. And only yes. after the second time he breaks it, he fully breaks it on him, uh, is when the teacher's like, "Oh, get him! Stop him! Stop him! Stop him!" And then you can see Terrell on the floor just um, 
bundled up and you know yeah. like initially i thought he was dead the first time i saw him i, I, I thought he connected was hoping then i was like uh no mm-hmm. now i was like okay because he doesn't move for a few seconds yeah. which just mm-hmm. puts the audience in like okay it's, i mean is it really that bad and then as he's getting beaten down more you see him like move just a little bit like okay he's alive he'll survive but it's it's a beating that needed to happen and and this this scene is actually one of the two long shots in the movie i like right one is the first scene of the movie is the first amazing long shot where it's one and then the other dealer just you know the camera mm. goes round and round it sort of is pulling you into the world of the film you know drawing you mm. in and there's this long shot where the camera tracks chiron from behind uh he's entering the school picking up that chair up until the point where it cuts to the teacher i think it's one continuous shot again yeah. lovely scene lovely build up to it i just loved how that take was it was uh, it, it it comes out of the blue cuz you I mean you you see that he's going in there to confront him you kind of sense it but the brutality of the scene is is just like it hits you very hard and you're just like okay wow that was yeah. um that, that was i did not expect that and i think as a result he gets sent to juvie in atlanta and yeah. then he comes out and he embraces the one personality completely um and this is where chapter 3 starts it's called black yeah. Oh. Chapter three, called Black, like you said, starts with him now late twenties in his late twenties, I guess. Early thirties, late twenties. Yeah. yeah, played by a buff Travante Rhodes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, uh, he's got muscles popping out of places I didn't even know. Existed. I thought he was like I, I'm. I'm one of the one of those people. I thought he was related to Fifty Cent in some way or the other because he looks a lot. Like <laughs> I'm sure he gets uh, that guess. a lot as well. I guess. I guess. but um, again i mean slightly moving away from the movie per se travante rhodes performance in this in this uh, chapter in, in moonlight is outstanding but his career outside of it has been very like bird box he was very you know whatever it didn't matter whether he was there or not and uh, he was in the, the tyson very movie good no? actor. yeah yeah i again mm-hmm. i don't remember the name he's clearly a, there's clearly a very good actor in him i guess you know it really comes down to what the director can bring out because mm-hmm. he's been very underwhelming in other films but anyway coming back to moonlight so now you have chiron who has adopted the persona of black which is what kevin keeps calling him growing up right now he's he's like yeah. adopted that mantle and uh he's everything that the name black entails he's huge he's tough uh he himself uh has become a bit of a bully there's a scene with uh, one of his sub dealers where he just fucks with the subdealer saying you're short and uh, i guess like no i counted it and he's like you think i'm you know this is almost joe pesci scene where mm. like, you think i'm fucking with you you think i'm uh, you think you can fuck with me you think i'm lying and uh, he puts him at any and he's like no i'm just messing with you the count is fine you need to be tough mm-hmm. because people will mess with you on the street i was like there's there's no need i mean you could have imparted that mm. lesson in a different way as well right you can mm-hmm. see he's he doesn't have probably as much grace as he did in his younger years or or maybe he does is this is just this front that he has to put on saying you know i'm a tough guy don't mess with me i can there's an air of unpredictability he builds around himself so people don't mess with him um mm-hmm. like the walls are now like you know higher and thicker than they've ever been before right he's yeah. nearly unrecognizable uh from who he was as a kid uh but again you see there are there are moments even in this chapter that we'll get into this, the scene with his mom the scene with kevin where slowly you see those those walls crumble and that is i think that for me is the enduring message of the movie that i really take away right no matter how withdrawn a person is with enough love and uh, attention and you know acknowledgement the the biggest and broadest of walls can also come crumbling down But, I think uh, with let's, his, let's mom, his mom yeah, yeah his mom makes this this point that he was never one for sleeping well anyway and you can see in this episode he doesn't sleep well either yeah. like in this ch- chapter so consistently i think he's been dealing with a sleeping issue so there's there's a lot going on and mm. and he's just uncomfortable with who he is like he's built this image this person but you can clearly tell that he's uncomfortable being the person that currently is Mm-hmm. and his mother says come see me i want you to come see me and this is this is a really powerful scene in the film because i think his mother is 
I, where is she at this point? She's in a rehab. She's done with yeah. her program, and she decides to stay back and just work there because it's a good environment for her to be in. She, I think, for the first time, she tells him that she loves him, and God knows that she couldn't love him when he really needed to be loved. And you see Sharon sitting in that chair and just crying. I love you, Sharon. I do. I love you, baby. I mean, you ain't gotta love me. Lord knows I did not have love for you when you needed it. I know that. So you ain't gotta love me. But you gonna know that I love you. You hear? You hear me, Sharon? And we've all had that moment with the parent at some point. I'm not saying to the extent that either of our parents have had addiction issues, mm-hmm. but I'm mm-hmm. saying you've had moments where, like your parents, as they've been raising you, there's no guidebook to parenting. Uh, there's no everyone, and they do make mistakes. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. I think everyone tries to be the best version of themselves they can be as parents, but still, your child will inadvertently blame you for a bunch of shit, or will feel that you they've been wronged. And it's just life. I initially had had a very troubling relationship with for a few years with with my own mother, and then that kind of like sorted things out over the course of time. But when we had that conversation, I remember being in that very vulnerable position, and I remember being very upset, and um, I kind of. that scene even though the context of it is very different the end result of it was quite similar because i noticed a, a certain set of emotions that charon was feeling that i that i'd felt at one point so i was really it really struck a chord with me like what did you think about it like how did that scene play out for you it's funnily enough i mean even between my two parents the one that i have more friction with mm. like as a trend is my mom so Mm-hmm. uh so that made me that made easier for me to get into the scene nothing major but you know on and off mm-hmm. things yeah. there there are flare ups mm-hmm. but uh when when paula's character says you know i i did love you and uh i i know i can't ask you for forgiveness but i still want to say sorry and mm-hmm. uh she i think the line she says you you're going to love me shyron or whatever mm-hmm. i was in a dilemma because what do you do with that that apology right because again this is probably me taking a harsher view of chin then is fair but uh, she really wasn't there for him and if i was in mm-hmm. his position i honestly would i don't know yet if i would have the grace to forgive her the fact that sharon's character does is speaks testament to his inner innate goodness despite all the walls around him innately mm-hmm. he's that good a person that he's able to forgive her you see that behavior uh you know that his body language also changes when she talks to him like that he becomes that little yeah. boy again if you've seen his shoulders get narrower his head goes down mm-hmm. it's that same shy boy that he was as a kid and he needs to sort of draw upon that was younger version of him to find the grace to forgive her is the way i read it and i don't know if i would have it in me honestly for the character i don't think able to yeah i think i've let a very protective childhood uh, protected childhood and my parents have been great and even though like i mentioned the relationship with my mother at some point was a bit fraught and she said something very similar and like, i really don't want to go into details about it but like she mm-hmm. said something very similar and uh even for me that was like difficult to like to you know kind of get over mm-hmm. but i don't know what i like much like you how i would do with someone who is you know like like with the mother like like Paula but then you also understand that this is a person that wasn't doing this out of uh you know her own volition it was just she's an addict and that's the thing with addicts they can't help themselves they're they're ill addiction is a disease that rips through families and you name it alcohol like alcohol drugs um sex up to a certain extent there's all sorts of addictions that just drive families apart and it's not because the people who are addicted to the substance or to the situation are bad people it's just because they can't help it like they're fully trapped and they're trying their best to get out of it but the only way to uh, the only solace that they have is in that drug and it's killing them and 
I've had a few friends who've gone to rehab and who were definitely in, you know, in that dark place. And there was a point where you couldn't really reason with them. But then you understand that that's not who they are. That's just what is, that's just the, this really fucked up scenario that they're in. So I, I, I think agree, I have but, sympathy. But does yeah. that mean, because addiction is a problem, does that mean the onus of forgiveness is on the people around them who get hurt? I don't think that's fair I guess, either, right? I mean, it's not fair. It's not fair, but it just it speaks to just how much you're willing to forgive and forget. Because holding, I'm of the opinion. And this is a very personal thing. I'm of the opinion that holding a grudge and walking through life um, is exhausting. Like, there's, it's just mm-hmm. the only person that that feels let down at the end of it is you, because you're carrying the burden of that that grudge. Of course, the other person has committed the act, and they're and you know they're have this they have their own internal I don't know I don't know how they're internalizing it some mm-hmm. people don't care some people are probably like it's just really pulling them down but it's not the grudge isn't doing anything for you as well I think mm-hmm. it's it's a time thing you may forgive but you may not necessarily forget which is what I think what happens in, in mm-hmm. this scene he forgives her but doesn't mean he's going to forget about it because he still yeah. as he once he goes back to Miami the walls are still there it's mm-hmm. um, it's like they haven't it, it's not a life-changing experience for him maybe he's rich right. but his mother's improved but yeah. as a person, he is still who he is. True, true. I agree. I think the next bit in the chapter is, you know, it goes a long way towards fundamentally changing him as a person because like you, you use the term, right? There's no safe space for him. The only safe yeah. space probably was and he hopes is or will be Kevin, right? And uh, so the the last, this is probably the, the last bit of the film where... Uh, he finds out that uh, Kevin uh, is... I, I forgot how he finds out that Kevin is back in town. Uh, I think Kevin calls him, right? Mm-hmm. Kevin calls him yeah. out of the blue and uh, says, hey, I was in jail for so-and-so. For some stupid reason, uh, I'm out now. I'm, I'm in, back in my uh, Miami. So if you're in town, visit me. And obviously, you know, uh, Black's all the way in Atlanta, but he drives all the way from mm-hmm. Atlanta to Miami. Uh, give some bullshit excuse to Kevin as to why he did that. Not really feeling vulnerable enough to say, you know, I did it just because I wanted to meet you. But he he visits Kevin in the diner and there's a good, I think, half an hour sequence of different interactions between Kevin and uh, Black where, again, there are, there's, you know, a lot said in different love languages, I would say. There's the whole scene mm-hmm. of Kevin uh, very attentively preparing a special meal for Chiron, which I mean, if you ask me, the meal didn't look appetizing at all. It was just fucking baked beans. No, it's not the thought that counts, really. <laughs> yeah. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's, so there's that one love language of making food and giving it to Black. Then there's the whole, uh, you know, there are things about Black that only Kevin sees, uh, which others don't, yeah. right? Uh, mm-hmm. I, I forgot what it is. I think um, Black turns his head away when laughing or something, or some mannerism he does, and Kevin's like, hey, uh, Still the same Chiron, still doing whatever that mannerism mm. is, I forgot. So there mm. are things about Chiron which only Kevin spots. And you know, this it's a nice quick callback to the fact that nobody sees Chiron the way Kevin does. And so mm. there's that expression of love and uh, him calling Kevin, uh, him calling Chiron out on uh, literal and metaphorical fronts, right? Chiron has these gold fronts yeah. on his teeth. And uh, Kevin asks him, What are these fronts for, man? Who are you fronting for? So it did mm-hmm. the line works in both ways. Like, what is this fake persona you've you've got put on? Like, who are you fooling? I can see right through you, right? Yeah. And uh, throughout that that interaction, Kevin keeps giving hints. Not necessarily that he's romantically interested or whatever, but you know, like we have a special relationship. Whatever the nature of that relationship is, you might want to deny that it doesn't exist anymore because you've changed as a person. But I can see that you haven't. Mm-hmm. So that, that's the, the message that Kevin keeps putting out. And Sharon, reluctantly, you can see him responding to that message. He's very at first, but slowly, slowly, mm-hmm. he opens up. Uh, obviously, the, the, the climax of that scene is when they go back to his house. Conversation gets even more vulnerable, intimate. Kevin talks about how uh, he messed up his life. He had a kid uh, with yeah. that girl. I think it's the very same girl that they were talking about in the second chapter. Yeah. And... Uh, and he's like, she's in my life, but I mean, the girl, his daughter is in my life, mm. but I'm sort of untethered right now. And maybe these are sort of feelers that Kevin is putting out for Chiron to catch saying, hey, you know what? If if 
there is something you're open here. to it yeah. you're open mm-hmm. to it and then i think sharon drops what is probably the heaviest line or whatever the you know the crux of the the movie where he says you're the only uh, uh guy who's ever touched me which could mean mm-hmm. so in so many ways physically emotionally yeah. whatever right mm-hmm. and uh, for I, again Trevante Rhodes body language in that scene is outstanding a huge guy but he looks like a, an 8 year old again withdrawn yeah. into himself very scared to reveal that in the most part of himself where he said you know mm-hmm. you are the most important person to me because he's really putting himself out there something that every time he's done before he's been hurt so it's like will I be hurt this time and then it mm-hmm. ends on this very nice quiet scene of them just sitting and uh, you know black puts his head on Kevin shoulder I think yeah. that's where the movie ends movie ends yeah you don't know what will happen the two of them will stay the two of them probably Sharon leaves because I think he's he he gets the the assurance and the closure that he needed about um, that's an interesting way to look about it uh, yeah. I mean I, like I, I feel like uh, the way I looked at it it was it was a culmination of acceptance right the one person could be yeah definitely be but I it could probably uh, very well be like a no but the way now now when i listen to you this is this also could also be like a very you know the graduate ending sort of thing where hey now we're together but now what right yeah. Yeah, there's that ambiguity about the future maybe yeah that you could, could yeah like, that's the thing like he he leaves it as open of course they're, they're having a, they're sharing a tender moment but in this day and age a tender moment means very little <laughs> so <laughs> it, uh but i think it's more for, for their own personal journey i think they're once again accepting of you know that they found someone who accepts them for yeah. for themselves yeah. and i think that's that's a beautiful way to end the film and these yeah. two big burly uh, dudes were just <laughs> like curled up into each other and it's it's, it's very heartwarming to see the tornado is like a nubian hercules man shit <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but uh, I mean that's the story of the film. I just wanted to spend a couple mm-hmm. on some technical aspect that I sort of made notes of. If you've noticed what he does in this film to really make it intimate, right? Firstly, I feel like mm-hmm. this movie has, in the process of reading about this movie, I came about uh, across this term called cinema verite, which essentially yeah. means honest cinema or truthful cinema. Yeah. Your 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 dogma in ninety five movies of Denmark uh, fall under that category. John Cassavetes is. Uh, Mm-hmm. filmography largely falls under the category of women under the influence uh, is a prime example of it where you, you, nothing is cinematically set up right uh, i mean mm-hmm. obviously everything is set up it, it's it's a film set at the end of the day but it's made to look as natural as possible camera movements mm-hmm. uh, facial expressions nothing's over the top it's all very naturalistic uh, moonlight you know follows that to a t and uh, mm-hmm. even in terms of framing shots what i really like is the super tight short reverse shots that he keeps doing throughout the film when a character is yeah. talking the film the camera is right in their face and it again cuts to the person listening it's just a bunch of short reverse shots also not necessary that when a, a dialogue is being uttered that the character on screen yeah. is mouthing it there's yes. this lag between when a dialogue is said and it's just a very different effect it's 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 got like this haunting dream like a you know a false memory uh, or half remembered memory sort of quality to it it's like you're looking back mm-hmm. on things that have happened so you know you're piecing stuff together it's just got that quality obviously that also is further heightened by the cinematography or the colors color palette i've already mentioned wonkar wise influence on it moonlight is is brilliantly lit i think every frame there is so colorful uh there's blues there's pinks there's there's purples there's greens i mean he's made mm-hmm. use of the entire spectrum beautifully and a related point here i've honestly never seen uh, i think it's because barry jenkins himself is black i've honestly never seen black people being depicted in these shades on screen right i, I was reading about it they, uh, they, yeah. they oiled up the actors because they wanted their skin to glow under the under the light it's just i noticed this uh, i first read about this during the filming of insecure which is an isare show on on hbo and mm-hmm. i think the dop there uh, was also a dop for another show but she mentioned that a lot of purples a lot of blues is how they used to light up the scene to really emphasize the the color of the actor skin and this was another film that i noticed 
that okay we're using because under just under like bright white light like as like in the past it they they just it, it, there's no real stand out like the, the color of the skin doesn't really stand out yeah because uh, literally and, white light in that in the yeah. racial sense as well shows movies have traditionally been lit for caucasian people because that's you know the, yeah. most of the actors were that same lighting doesn't work for black people and Barry Jenkins or his dop have understood that and you know they yeah. have, it they've just brought it out beautifully it's just such a visual treat independent of what the story of the movie is just a visual treat to watch it and i think it it really influenced even uh, i may destroy you which is the the, the, the mm. other show on hbo very similar look yes yes, yes. yes. i've, I've so seen only half an episode but visually very mm. very very similar yes uh yeah and the last bit yes the last bit here we mentioned the 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 cinematography and the story there's the music as well nicolas pretel mm-hmm. uh, obviously far more famous mm-hmm. now for the succession uh, soundtracks but uh, uh this was pre succession uh, he he gave the soundtrack for the movie as well yeah. again chiron's theme is this melancholic string symphony that he sort of put together it's it's got piano bass and and high cello strings it's again like a melancholic it's 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 got this pain underneath it it's you can clearly tell it's about somebody who's misunderstood uh um, yeah. the scene where wan teaches uh Chiron to swim as well. It's, that that scene has a beautiful uh, background soundtrack as oh, well. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 not in your face. It's it's not like a Hans Zimmer. It it just beautifully complements what's happening on screen. But when you pay attention to it to it, you re, you realize it's brilliant. So again, that's another shout out. I I kind of wanted to give. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think that's all there is to say on Moonlight. Yeah. Anything else you want I'm to add? I'm just so happy. Thoughts? I've been wanting to do like an episode on Moonlight for ages. I I think this is sort of first time I've been mentioning. This is like my favorite movie of the decade. Yes, I mean outside of Parasite. Parasite is like a a perfect movie, but this is my favorite like you know personal movie uh, of the mm-hmm. 2010s. And I was like, when do we find? When do we discuss? When do we discuss? Finally, it's happened. Okay, I was really glad. I I had a really nice experience with it. Uh, the second time I watched it, I felt because I, you know it's one of those films that grow on you that you yeah. that I may have watched too early because I was what twenty five when this movie came out. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I mean, didn't really have the patience to sit down and really sit and sit with the themes and observe what what was happening. So I was like, yeah, okay, it's it's an okay, it's an all right movie. I prefer La La Land, uh, but now I watched it. I, I do still like La La Land a lot. but this movie made me I, i feel exactly the same i'm like yeah. i love la la land it has its own yeah, place but when you watch very moonlight different you're like i get why moonlight one it is probably objectively the better movie i like i watched if bill street could talk where which is basically um barry jenkins sophomore picture and yes. i did not have as great a time with it as i did with this film maybe if i rewatch that i think that's based on a james baldwin story as well yes um but and that was a little more accessible let's say in the, than moonlight but i still would prefer this over that mm-hmm. um but yeah that's that's us for this episode if you haven't seen moonlight i highly recommend that you go check it out i'd suggest you be patient with it if you're watching it for the first time because it is a slow it's a movie that that moves along quite slowly it yeah. has its own pace it's a character study it's uh, not like a thriller exactly. or a bombastic film it's, a, it's not a at all far from intimate it. character study Yeah, speaking of of character studies, uh, uh, next week where we'll be doing the next episode, we'll be featuring uh, a character that I think has aged spectacularly. Rather, the film, a film that has aged spectacularly, that is nineteen ninety eight's The Truman Show. And if you haven't seen The Truman Show, I'd highly suggest you go and watch it before you listen to that episode, because we'll be spoiling everything that is uh, to that episode. Because I have seen the film, I think, at the time of recording this episode, I've seen it thrice in the last three weeks. <laughs> um repeatedly because it's it i did not expect for expect it to be the kind of film that it it is today the way it's aged especially so if you haven't seen it just go check it out you'll find it on any streaming website it's not on your netflixes and amazons but you will find the movie online that that's just say that uh check it out and uh, we'll see you for that uh in the next week and that's me and that's Rohit yes and we'll, we'll see you soon take care so they Goodbye. open their big mouth Now came talk, talk, talk. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn.
देशों में ऐसी छोटी छोटी बातें होती रहती हैं Good afternoon, good evening and good night.